And that is a very familiar passage, I would think, especially once I tell you the subject matter, if you don't remember, is the story of David and uh, Goliath, however you pronounce that horrible name. Uh, But uh, what I want to do this morning is something a little different. I'm not apologizing. I just want you to prepare your thinking caps because... Sometimes as we look at the story of David and Goliath, we isolate it as a uh, single event in history. And, you know, David was out there, hayseed shepherd, just floating around in the pasture, chewing on the hay and strumming his harp. And all of a sudden, Goliath came up and David got in a lucky shot and Goliath went down. And and we often look at it that way. And we say, David... um, uh, David uh, just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and and uh, that's not true. David was in the right place at the right time, but he didn't just happen to be there. And the first battle that David fought was not a battle with Goliath. It was the culmination of many battles that David had fought, both small unseen battles and some that We'll talk about, and David did use to say that God has used these battles in my life to prepare me. And and uh, we've not a, an actual series where I sat down and said, we're going to have uh, a, a series on battles in the Christian life in January. But it seems to be just kind of falling in that order. But I want us to look and understand that God uses the entire Bible, and we're going to go to the New Testament, and we're going to see in a New Testament passage the outline of what happened in David's life and how the God prepared him for that battle, and that the reason the story of David and Goliath is in the Old Testament is so that we would read the New Testament, understand what happened in the Old Testament truly and completely, and then take that application to our life today. Now, if we're all going to get there, we're going to have to think a little harder than watching television. Amen? Uh, I'm going to do my best to lay things out and, and keep us in, in a proper order here. But God wants us to engage our mind, our passion, our souls, in his service. That doesn't happen by accident. That doesn't happen just because, well, David was there. He was the only one willing and so it. No. I think we're going to see a pattern in David's life that is outlined by Peter in the New Testament. And so we're going to go... I want to read one verse out of 1 Samuel 17, and this was the verse that just got me studying in this direction... Here, and I want you to come down to verse uh, 48. Verse 48. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. The title of the message this morning is Toward the Battle. And I want us to just take a moment and picture this Goliath, according to the scripture, nine foot, six inches tall. Uh, And by the way, he would have not liked to play 
on the NBA. He would have rather been in one of those mortal combat, death-fighting things. That, I mean, that was what Goliath was. His whole life was trained to do one thing, kill people. And he was kept hidden by the Philistines. The, the children of Israel had no idea who this, was, who this guy was, that he even existed until all of a sudden they hear the ground shaking, they hear things moving on the battlefield, and out comes... Goliath of Gath. Nine foot six inches tall. We don't know exactly what he weighed. Our scales weren't there, but uh, I'd say chances are he probably weighed over 600 pounds. His armor, the coat of mail that he weighed, uh, that, uh, that he uh, was weighed more than most of the men in this auditorium. That was his battle garment. By the way, you don't wear anything too heavy when you go into battle because it'll slow you down. The head on his spear weighed 30 pounds. How many of you have ever did shot put in high school? Uh, I think that's really dumb, throwing an eight-pound cannonball. Uh, But they make you do that How would you like to throw a 30-pound spearhead and actually be able to do something with it? Uh, That tells me that this dude was big, that he was mean. And we always have the picture of the giant going, boom, boom. Uh, I think Goliath, with legs as long as he had and muscles as powerful, could probably outrun most of our football players in a 100-yard dash. This guy was prepared for battle. You don't go into battle going, I'm going to get you. It just doesn't work. Only in the movies does stupid stuff like that happen. And here comes David in his shepherd garment, probably 16, 17 years old, 130, 150 pounds in this corner carrying his shepherd's staff, uh, a rod of sizable dimension, probably an inch or inch and a quarter or so in dimension, uh, something that he could uh, do battle with, kill snakes, ward off animals and and things like that, and and a slingshot. And by the way, David's sling was not two pieces of rubber on a V-shaped tube. Uh, It was a long band of leather with a cup and attached to the other side of that little cup was another long piece of leather, probably about six foot in diameter and he could whip that thing around and when that stone left that sling, it was probably traveling in excess, way excess of 100 miles an hour. Now, if you got beamed in the head with a fast pitch baseball, Without a, uh, I mean, it made skin contact. Uh, You'd be in trouble now, wouldn't you? Now, this was a rock slung out of that sling. Now, here we have the giant. And we're not going to take time to read everything here right now. And and we'll probably just go over. I challenge you, if you want all the details, read the entire chapter this afternoon. But they had just traded the 
traditional statements as Goliath says, who am I that you send a little boy uh, to fight me? And, and he curses David by his gods and, and, and says that I'm going to destroy you. And David says, listen, I'm not coming to you with sword and spear and all those weapons. I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. And God's going to give the victory. Well, they got done trading those comments toward each other. And Goliath says, okay, it's time to kill this little boy. He gets up and he starts moving toward the battle. They're meeting in the valley between the two armies. And David hasted. He said, it's time to fight. And he starts running toward the Philistine army, toward this giant that is four or five times himself, and everybody goes, because they know this guy's going to get killed. What probably took less than 30 seconds, they look up as they hear, boom. And Goliath's laying on his face. And before anybody really can comprehend what's going on, David goes up and jumps up on the back of the Philistine who's laying on the ground. And David's looking around while everybody's just going. And he pulls the sword out of the sheath of the Philistine. Now, a nine foot six inch tall guy has a very big sword. Five foot three? He's not swinging a sword that long. So you can just see how David grabs a hold of that thing. Whoa! (laughs) Okay, now where am I? Ah, there we go. And you hear the blade cut into the stones underneath the body of Goliath. Really bad things happen. By the way, don't accuse me of being gory until you cut your cable, all right? Amen? Amen? I'm just telling the story as it happened in the Bible. And the victory was won. The Philistines were thinking only one thing. If that's what the little boys can do, I I don't think I want to be around to meet the men. Was that true? No, all the men were standing there shivering in their... Uh, uh, I don't know what we should call them. Uh, They were acting like a bunch of scared little girly men. And by the way, if it was nine foot six and weighed 600 pounds, uh, I think I'd be with them. How about you? Because this battle that was fought, somebody was going to die. And David hasted toward the battle and ran toward the army to meet the Philistines. I like that. You know what we do when we have some difficult battle we have to face in our lives? Here's what we do. Here's what I do. Wait a minute. Some wise men in the ministry told me, choose your battles carefully. So let's uh, sit down and have a conference about this. Uh, let, Let me think about this. Let me call some people and get some advice on this thing. Um, you know what, mate? This is a very serious thing. We need to spend a lot of time fasting and praying 
And the last thing we do is hasten toward the battle. And we wonder why we lose. We live in an age where compromise is esteemed a great virtue. Could I challenge you that there was no negotiation with Goliath? It was either going to be the children of Israel were going to be the slaves of the Philistines or the Philistines were going to be the slaves of the children of Israel. There was no middle ground here. There was no uh, uh, peace treaty that could be signed because these people had been killing each other for generations. And this story happened a thousand years before Christ was born. That's why there will be no peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace rules from the city of peace. Because only God can change hearts. But how many of you just love the story of David and Goliath? I mean, I just love this story. And even today, some little guy, some person of small uh, political stature, they take on City Hall and win, and it says, David smoked Goliath again. And we like it when something like this happens. It's not supposed to work this way. But I want to challenge you. 1 Samuel 17 is not the story of David's lucky day. There was a lifetime of preparation that had gone into this 17-year-old boy before he met Goliath on the field. And I want us to turn to second and first Peter, I'm sorry, first Peter chapter five. And I, I wish that somehow I could impress upon the heart and the soul of everyone here that we are engaged in a real battle. And that real things are happening. And by the way, the battle is not where you think it is. The battle's not at City Hall. The battle's not in Congress. The battle is not in the courts of this country. The battle is in the hearts and souls of individuals. And if we lose the battle there, we will lose the battle everywhere. And the reason we are losing the battles today for morality and right in our society is because we are losing the battle for right and morality in the hearts of individuals who call themselves Christians. We were told... I remember when I was a kid was when this thing first started out was you need to be a good loser. Well, I think what you need to understand that when you're playing on the ball diamond, when you're having competition among friends, that you don't need to get a baseball bat out and break the legs of the best player on the other team to win the game. But that kind of stuff is going on. I was just going through trying to keep track of the news stuff and I saw this uh, article on lawnmower parenting. How many of you have heard those things on the news? It's a, I guess it's a new term that they invented of parents who go overboard trying to make their children victorious on the playing field. They showed a video of uh, two kids wrestling, and one was 
on top of the other and about to pin him. And the father of the child about to be pinned comes out and grabs the child and throws him off. Now somebody needs to explain to that man, not how to be a good loser, but that a wrestling match is not worth going to prison for. Amen? And I really kind of hope he ends up there, at least for 30 days or so, to, to show him that this is not what life is about. How many of you have ever been to a football game? I, I will not attend professional football games. It's just too dangerous in the stands. I've been to some college games. My brother works at West Virginia, and, and every time West Virginia comes up here to beat up on Rutgers, he gets me a few tickets. Uh, but they put all the West Virginia stands in, uh, fans in one little place in the stands. You know why? Because they don't want the Rutgers fans getting in fistfights with the West Virginia fans. And, and it has happened. I'm sitting here going, this ain't worth it. I mean, there are some things to fight about, but just because your team can't be mine, tough. Get a better team. Right? You know, as often in life, here's what we do. We concentrate on the battles that are meaningless and we pay no attention to the battles that determine our future and destiny. I was flipping through uh, uh, some online books that I have and I did a search and this article came up on Teddy Roosevelt and the abolitionist before the Civil War. And I thought, this ought to be an interesting article to read. And it was a book that was written by one of the great God-hating agnostics of his day, John Hume, and he was quoting this article written by uh, then uh, uh, president-to-be. Uh, he had not been elected president yet. He had not gone that high in the, in the political system, uh, he, but by Theodore Roosevelt. And he criticized the abolitionists as having been one of the worst foes of slavery. And what he meant by that was they did more to aid slavery than they did to hinder it. And you know what? I, I see a parallel today in those that are against abortion because many of them would destroy all law, all civil obedience, all right and wrong so that they could stop an abortion. Now, no one's more against abortion than I am. You say, how can you prove that? I have 12 children. I am against abortion. I believe in life. But I don't believe murdering abortion doctors is the way to stop abortion. 
In fact, if you look at history, all that Mr. Terry and Operation Rescue and people like that have accomplished is making judges pass laws to protect the rights of those murdering babies. Are we still together this morning? I can tell you how to stop abortion is for parents to teach their children the difference between right and wrong before the unwanted babies are conceived. That will stop abortion. That will reduce it to a non-topical subject. And by the way, that approach will work with any social battle and ill which we face. You see, we can legislate morality. Don't believe someone when they say you can't legislate morality. You can legislate morality. But just because we obey moral laws does not make us moral souls. Only God can make you want to do right on the inside. And the reason you and I do wrong in our lives as Christians is because we're fighting the wrong battles. Now, if you think Goliath was mean and ugly and big and dangerous, wait until you see the battle that we're the enemy with whom we're fighting. I want us to read First Peter chapter five. First Peter chapter five, and we're going to start in verse five. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, As a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. All God's people said. This is God's pattern for battle. First of all, let's talk about the preparation. And as we talk about these things, I want you to study the life of David. Or if you have been in our Sunday school, we will be going over that in a couple of months and have gone over it several times. But it starts out here, the, where we're starting here, is likewise ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. You know something? God made parents older 
for a reason. <laughs> Amen. God made grandparents a lot older for a reason. And it's not just so that the natural progression could happen. It's so that they would have a little more wisdom or should have a little more wisdom to impart to those who are following after them. October. My children's grandfather is coming. Brother John Marshall, by God's grace. He is going to be 79 in May. And I want to tell you something. If it had not been for John Marshall's advice and care and direction in the life of this pastor and this church, we would not be where we are today. I was John Marshall's pastor for six or seven years. And I remember he and I going back and forth one time, and it was not. We were just joking around, and, uh, and I said, you know, being, being your pastor is a lot like being Babe Ruth's manager. Just get out of the way and let the guy do what he's going to do. Amen? I said, that's, that's my understanding. And one time he called me up and said, Hey, hey Pete, uh, I'm, I'm coming into the city. What, what way do you think I ought to come in? And I told him, just like, gave him directions. And he came up to me and says, You know, Pastor, i got to apologize to you. I didn't follow your directions. We got in a fender bender. And I believe that's because I didn't follow your directions as my pastor. And I'm sitting there going, wow. You see, this thing of submitting yourself. You want your children to obey you, parents? Obey your parents. Otherwise, you can't teach them how to obey their parents. You want to be a spiritual leader? Find those that are spiritual and follow them. Submit yourselves. That's what this passage is talking about. I've actually had people, I don't want my kids turning out like yours. Okay. Uh, let's talk about that in 10 years. Uh, I would hope your kids would turn out to want to serve God with their lives because nothing else matters, my friend. And if God calls them all the way across the world, then so be it. But I want them to be where God wants them to be. But some of them are coming back, amen? Peter's here. And we're going to pray that God calls him to start a church here as he is given that direction, but we won't know those two things until it happens. Amen. The next verse says, well, let's just finish verse 5 here. We don't have time to cover everything in these verses or we'll never get done. Uh, and, of course, we never have that problem here of not getting done. Amen. But uh, it says, And be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. You know, humility is one of those wonderful things 
The moment you realize you have touched it, it turns to dust. How can you be clothed in humility? Well, the simplest way, and, and we don't have time, we could spend our whole morning on just that one phrase, but the simplest way to be clothed in humility is get your eyes off you and get them on God. Stop trying to figure things out. Let God figure it out for you. That's why the two verses down is there. It says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Brother Whitaker didn't know what I was preaching on. He said, obey God's word where you are. You know what? One of the things that you can obey God in is showing up church on Sunday morning. Amen? But I haven't quite figured this out because only... About half the people show up Sunday night. God's interested in prayer, my friend. And the prayer service will build you in that part of your life. And Thursday night is our Bible study. That is the meat and potatoes. You want, you want deep spiritual uh, truth and you want principle upon principle. That's what Thursday night is about. Every service attacks and builds a different part uh, of your life. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. Now, we like to quote that verse all by itself. But I want to challenge you that if you don't humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your cares upon him is not going to do you much good. When you get yourself in trouble by disobeying God's word, yes, pray. But don't expect the same type of help that God will give you when you find yourself in a battle of life by being obedient to God's word. I think I said that right, didn't I? If I truly want to be able to cast all of my cares upon him, that is the result of humbling myself under the mighty hand of God. The way I humble myself under God's hand is just simply say, this is what the Bible says, and I'm going to do it because God said so. Somebody said, are you just foolish enough to believe that God created the earth in, in, six, in seven days? And I always want to correct him. God didn't create the earth in seven literal days. He did it in six. The seventh one he rested. Amen. You say, but that's foolishness. I know that we have many human beings that are poster children for evolution. Meaning that if we were to look at their lifestyle and go down to the zoos and study the monkeys... We can see some similarities there. But I don't know any self-respecting human being that is extolling that type of behavior. We teach them that they came from monkeys and then we get upset when they start acting like them. Why don't we teach them that they were made in the image of an almighty holy God? 
and expect them to reflect his image in their daily life. You're crazy. No. This is what it means to humble yourself. Because there's always going to be somebody out there to call you crazy. You know what's really fun? Is when you see one of those people, and we're not just criticizing people, but the, when, when somebody pierces themselves through with many piercings and they have little bits of metal sticking out all over them and 14 different shades of hair color and little beads and pokey things sticking out all over them, they are trying to make a statement that what I believe and what I live is totally against what you believe and what you live. And that's fine. It's a free country. But what really enjoys when one of those people look at me and say, you're crazy. <laughs> I, I take that as a compliment. I really do. I got to be doing something right. Amen? You see... The preparation of the battle is getting rid of my ideas and my plans and my desires and humbling myself in the sight of Almighty God and just being obedient to God because He says to do it this way, I'll surrender to His will and then I can cast all of my cares upon Him. How many of you would like to cast all your cares upon the United Nations? If, if that is really your philosophy, I challenge you to do one thing. See me after service. We'll put you down for counseling because you're just... I, I don't often do long-term counseling. I believe the Bible is the best type of counseling. But if you really believe that, we, we need to do something uh, very serious, very quick. How many of you want to cast all your cares upon Congress? I mean, again, if you do... We do offer counseling for people who are in that serious of a need. Well, if you're not going to cast it on the United Nations, if you're not going to cast it on the government of the United States, where are you going to cast your cares? I'll take care of it, preacher. Again, please see me. I'm going to cast all my cares upon him because he's the only one that can actually do anything about it. Now, I want to stop right here. This is the preparation for the battle. How many of you remember David's life story? He was a keeper of the... Was there any lower job than a keeper of the sheep? How many brothers did David have? He was the youngest one, and where was he? Keeping the sheep. Because nobody else wanted the job. Does that sound like humility? What did David do when he was out there in the fields caring for those sheep? Well, we find out later he was a cunning player on the harp. Uh, those of you that play musical instruments know uh, you don't get there without lots and lots of practice. Somebody said, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, amen? Amen. That's how you get there. David 
spent a lot of time humbling himself under the mighty hand of God, learning music that would later be used in worship to God. I want to challenge you, you're not going to learn how to play music in worship and praise to God in a secular university. You have to learn that by getting close to God. By submitting yourself under the hand of God. By the way, as David kept the sheep, he would later relate this story to King Saul as he was preparing to face the giant. He said, a lion came and, and tried to devour my sheep. And what did David do to the lion? Well, it was real simple. David said, I got a job to do. It's keep the sheep. The lion's not keeping the sheep. He's eating the sheep. So I will have to kill the lion to keep the sheep. Now, how many of you'd like to go after a lion with a stick and a slingshot? I wouldn't want to go after a lion with a great big rifle. In fact, I don't want to go after any lions at all. Amen? But David killed the lion. Do you think that was preparation for Goliath? Uh, let me tell you, it was. And a bear came out. And the same thing happened to the bear that happened to the lion. We see in these three verses here that by submitting ourselves unto the elder, by learning from those that have been before us, there are many passages of Scripture I'm alluding to this morning without directly quoting them, that we are to find people whose lives are in service for the Lord and follow them as they serve the Lord. That's what church is about. We are to submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God. We are to humble ourselves. We're going to let God exalt us in due time. And by the way, most of that exaltation is going to be in heaven at the throne so that we can give glory to God for what he did in our lives. And then, once we're clothed in humility, we're no longer thinking about self. And we can let God carry the burdens of this life and not be destroyed by them. Because you go into battle distracted, you're going to lose. One of the preachers at Heartland this week gave the story of a medic serving in Afghanistan. He said one of the hardest things to do was as I was hovering over that wounded uh, soldier to try to keep him alive, he said, the bullets were flying all around. He said, it was easy to get distracted, and if I got distracted, this man was going to die. Let me tell you, when we're fighting battle, and you go into battle with all the cares and concerns and burdens of this life, there's no way you can concentrate on the battle. That's why that verse is there. 
you read 1 Samuel chapter 17, there was only one thing David was concerned about as he was facing Goliath, and that one thing was the fact that Goliath had blasphemed the God of Israel. He said, you've defied the God of Israel, and he's a real God, and I'm here to prove that he is real. And when Goliath's body was laying on the battlefield in a pool of his own blood, Goliath's blood, not David's, David had proved that God was greater than the Philistines' gods. Now, the next step I want you to look at here is verse 8 and 9 in 1 Peter chapter 5. Tells us who the enemy is. Be sober, it says. Be vigilant. Uh, By the way, was David sober and vigilant? You bet he was. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, let's just talk about the enemy a minute. How many of you know how lions hunt prey? It's an interesting study. The big old male lion who's the head of the, of the pride will walk up onto an overlook somewhere where the animals are feeding peacefully. He'll sneak up there and he'll stand up in the bush and he'll roar. Now they tell us that a lion's roar can be heard nearly two miles away on the open plains of the African uh, Serengeti and all of those things. What do the animals do? They run away from the roar into the claws of the lionesses who are waiting in ambush to kill the prey. And then the lionesses all have to stand in line and wait until the lion that all he did was roar comes down and eats his fill and whatever's left over, then the lionesses and the cubs get. Perfect picture of the devil, is it not? (coughs) Um, Lions only roar two times, as far as I know, continually roar. When they're hunting prey, And they say when they have received their death wound. If you've ever read the exploits of David Livingston, it was more than one occasion he was woken out of his bed in the middle of the night to go find a wounded Simba who had one of his African servants in its mouth. And I I will tell you, I've read stories of big game hunters And one of them said, if you're not afraid, facing a lion, says, you don't belong out there. But can I get you back to verse 6 before we get too much fear in the lion? I mean, verse 7. Do you think fear of the lion is one of the cares that we ought to cast upon him? Do you see how everything is put together in the scriptures? Do you see why David was not afraid of Goliath? 
It was not because he wasn't computing the man's size and strength and quickness and skill and training. It's because David had cast that care upon God and God was bearing the burden of David's fear and everything else because there was a battle that had to be fought and David knew who the enemy was. You know, on that battlefield, it wasn't too hard to figure out who the enemy was. All the men of Israel were hiding on this side of the field. And all the Philistine army on this side of the field was going, nah, 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 you can't beat him. There was only one enemy on the field. It was Goliath. David, someone said David took five smooth stones because Goliath had four brothers and David was going to take out the whole family. Don't think so. I think David just wanted to make sure that that enemy was dead. He was praising God that it only took one stone. But he was prepared to run and hop and dodge and skip until, if need be, all five stones were used to bring down that enemy because he knew that the enemy with whom he was fighting, there was no compromise, there was no chance of a draw, there was no way that he was going to wear down his enemy. He either had to be conquered or David was going to die. I wish we could get a hold of that, my friends. We look at those verses that Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount and said, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. And we say, we make excuses. What Jesus was trying to say was, unless you're going to enter the battle with that kind of desire and that kind of understanding... You're not going to win. We have people. We have pastors. We have churches that are willing to negotiate and compromise with the world on every point of doctrine. You do not win battles by talking to the enemy. You win battles by killing the enemy. Now, you're not going to kill the devil. That's not your job. And by the way, please do not misunderstand. I am not among those who say, take the sword of the Spirit and go and do battle with the devil. And if you turn on the TV and hear one of them freaks that call himself a preacher, I'm sorry, but that's what it is. And he says, I bind the devil. You turn that idiot off. He doesn't have power to bind anything, not even his own mouth. If he did, he wouldn't be saying those foolish, wicked things. Your enemy is the devil. He's been around longer than you have. He knows the Bible better than you do. And he is seeking whom he may devour. That's the enemy. By the way, don't allow yourself to be distracted by his servants. You wonder why you can't beat, as we talked about abortion, by, by all the things that people have done. It's because you're leaving the enemy in control of the field and you're chasing his servants who are hiding behind him. Don't waste your time with the servants of the enemy. 
fight the enemy. You see, the verse, verse 9 here tells us, whom resist. I looked up that word resist just to make sure that I had it right. It says to withstand, to strive against, to oppose. Uh, we talk about scratch-resistant surfaces. That means that when something is put against that surface, that it does not penetrate the surface, that it slides across it. How many of you remember when they came up with Corian about 15, 20 years ago? Oh, it was the best thing in the world. They found that's not scratch-resistant. And then they came up with granite. No, I mean, that is just beautiful. But it's not scratch-resistant. Now they have quartz. And that is supposed to be the... Uh, let me tell you something. There is nothing in this earth that is truly resistant to everything. But if you're going to resist the devil, here's how you do it. Number one, steadfast. If, you wanna, if you've been around our church very long, you know one of the things that I talk about over and over again is the Word of God. Don't change the words. Don't allow somebody to give you something that's been doctored or altered, where the words have been moved around, where the text upon which our Bible has, uh, it, uh, their Bible is based, has been altered by the women fancy of men over the centuries. We want to be steadfast. We're not moving from the preserved Word of God. That's what the word steadfast means. Do you know what? When God gave His Ten Commandments, on Mount Sinai, he said, Thou shalt not bear false witness. Do you know something that's still wrong to tell a lie? But don't you understand? My, my wife asked me if that made her look fat. I mean, how can you tell the truth there and survive? You can always take the Fifth Amendment, but then you're going to get killed. Listen, men are, and women are always looking for excuses to tell the lie. There are none. And by the way, just because you have to tell the truth doesn't mean you have to be mean and cruel about it either. That's another sin. Jesus said all the law and the commandments are built on this one phrase, two Love the Lord thy God and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, if you had love and all the cares were out of that relationship, she probably wouldn't be worried about that in the first place. Amen. I didn't think I was going to answer it, but I did. You see, when we compromise our doctrine, we give victory to the devil. 
That's why we don't go to the world and have worldly musicians come in and help us play in our church. I get calls all the time. I'm a professional this or that. I'm a, I'm a trained this, a song leader and all of this. And The only music we have in our church is people who have given their hearts to the Lord. Because I don't care about your proficiency. I want to know if you've cast all your cares upon Him, if you've humbled yourself under the hand of Almighty God. Then God can use your music to resist the devil. By the way, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. Brother Whitaker in his presentation of Belize showed about the uh, Mennonite or Amish people that are down there. Let me tell you, there is no group I know of that are more steadfast in what they believe than the Amish people. I mean, how would you like to plow your field with mules and a metal plow instead of a, a great big nice tractor? How would you like to put yourself in a position where you had no electricity in your home? That's pretty steadfast. But let me tell you, that's not in the faith. There's not one verse in the Bible that says you can't use electricity. Aren't you glad we have lights? And the boiler's working? Said the wind chill was near zero today. And I appreciate everyone that made it out this morning. And I'm glad it's not near zero in the auditorium. Amen. In fact, if it's anything, it's a little warm. At least it feels that way to me. It says, whom resists steadfast in the faith? Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. It's one of the reasons I love going to the home missions conference at Heartland Baptist Bible College. We had 103 church planners and evangelists and home missions works registered just at one conference for three days. Let me tell you something. If there's hope for America, that's where it is. In three days, I think I put it in the bulletin, we collected $298,970 for new church starts in the United States. Hey, we're not in this battle alone. One of the reasons I'm willing to drive, we drove 3,270-some miles this week. We left Sunday morning right after the morning service, and we got back last night about 7 o'clock. But you know what? If I just took advantage of the generosity of our church and flew to the meeting, four other men couldn't have gone with me. Men who God needed to do work in their lives. That's why I drive. And we had three other guys that were promised to come with us that couldn't. But every year we work on getting people out there because they need to be reminded about something in Oklahoma and Texas. They need to be reminded that we're here. And I was talking with one pastor on Wednesday night and he said, yeah, I visited up there. He pastored in Kansas. And of course the famous quote, this doesn't look like Kansas, Toto. Uh, 
They need to be reminded that we're here and that our battles are different than theirs, but we're still serving the same God. And we be, need to be reminded that we're not the only thing in the world. Amen? And I'm glad that there are great churches out there that are able to do far exceeding above what we can do. But I'll tell you what, our church did a lot more than many of the churches that were there because we have a heart and an understanding that the same battles are accomplished in our brethren in the world. Amen? You see, the last part of this, and we'll be over it quickly, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make ye perfect. Uh, can I ask you a question? Was David the perfect warrior on that day? Well, let me tell you, he was. He needed nothing. You could not add to David's performance on that day. He was the epitome of warrior perfection. Was he always that way? No, David did some really dumb things. But he was in the right on that day. He was built up. Later he would become the king of all Israel. A man that God said who was after his own heart. And who got the glory for what David did? Nobody looked at David and said, Wow, where'd you get your training? They looked at David and said, Wow, what God did in giving the victory. Amen? Now I want you to I want to challenge you that what happened with David was parallel with what Peter outlined here in First Peter chapter five. David had humbled himself submitted himself under the hand of God. He had cast all of his care upon him. David had recognized who the true enemy was and that there was no compromise. He resisted him steadfast with what God had given him, which was nothing more than a shepherd's staff and a slingshot. Let me tell you, faith is just being obedient to God's word. And the world will always look at you as if you're carrying the shepherd's staff in a slingshot. But that's okay. The headache's coming. Amen? It's knowing that others are serving the same God. And when it's all said and done, that God gets the honor and glory. That's the pattern of the battle. Now, I don't care what battle you're facing today. I wish that I could talk to everyone who's having that battle of salvation, of surrendering their heart. But let me tell you, it just starts with giving up on who you are and believing in who God is. It's humbling yourself. That's what repentance is. Repentance is bringing your sin to God just the way it is. Because only God can take care of your sin. It is casting all of your care upon Him. Because He's the only one that can save you. 
Maybe you're facing the battle of some great temptation in your life. Could I challenge you? The devil has already gotten up and he's moving to the field of battle. It's time to hasten and run toward the army and the giant. It's time to get up off your blessed assurance and engage the enemy steadfast in the faith. Don't don't say, you know, this whatever event, form of entertainment, whatever, it's good all except for this one point. Well, that's not steadfast. Well, I'll surrender to go to church one service a week. That's not steadfast. Steadfast in the faith is just obeying the Bible, what it says. And somebody said, there's no verse in the Bible that says you got to go to church on Sunday morning. No. It says, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. It means every time the door's open, you ought to be here. Steadfast in the faith. Find out what the Bible says about it, not Dale Carnegie's book. Find out what the Bible says about it, not the experts at Harvard and Yale or the Cato Institute or any of those other things. You see, it is when we as individuals win the battle in our own soul against the devil that we turn the tide of morality in the entire nation. Are we still together? If not, we can start over again. The reward is God's glory and no one else's. I don't know how many people I've met over the years that are seeking some kind of special attention on themselves. Let me tell you something. That's only going to destroy you. I want the attention to be on my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where the victory is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning.